We are so thankful you decided to take time out of your day to listen to this sermon. Central to all of our services is gospel-centered teaching led by our senior pastor, Dr. Jeff Warren. Together, we are a church that seeks to follow Jesus every day, and we hope you are drawn closer to Christ as a result of this message. So as I said, we're on our Romans road trip, uh, which is a lot of fun for me. I, I like the, the idea of a journey. I like walking through uh, Romans. And I don't know uh, how, how your summer was, but I remember my summers growing up were times for me to be around my grandparents more uh, than I was during, say, the school year. And that might be for a whole host of reasons. Uh, for me, we planted a garden with my, my dad's parents. Gardens grow during the summer, especially the Georgia summer. Uh, so my, my memories of my grandparents seem to be rather hot for some reason. Um, a lot of sweat involved in gardening, I guess. And so uh, I spent a lot of time with, my, with, with Papa and Grandmama uh, doing, uh, doing gardening. We also, uh, maybe your grandparents lived far away. And so on the way to vacation, maybe you would stop off at grandma and grandpa's house and spend some time with them. Or maybe you went and spent time like weeks at a time uh, with your grandparents and kind of got away from the city or got away from where your parents lived and spent time with them. But inevitably, when you spend time with your grandparents, at some point, you will be called or you'll be notified that they have something they want to give you, right? And, and usually this is a family heirloom. Now, this usually goes down in one of two ways. You'll show up. And your grandparent will have the heirloom there ready to give it to you. Or you'll have to like go on this scavenger hunt because they'll think it's in one place. And you actually wind up going through the house trying to find the places where they might have put it. If they have it ready for you, they will then tell you the story of how they found it going through each room in the house. E- regardless of how you get the heirloom, it takes about the same amount of time to get the heirloom, Right? And it's a really precious thing. They're giving you something that they want you to have to pass on to future generations and to remember them by. It's a beautiful thing, regardless of how you get it. It's a beautiful thing. Well, today we're going to be in our grandfather Abraham's house, and he has an heirloom that he wants to give us. And we're going to look. It's it's faith, and it's where did he put his faith? Where did he wind up placing his faith? And so we're going to go through grandfather Abraham's house and look at four places where we might think our faith should be, and then we're going to find it's actually in a fifth place. We're in Romans 4, and we're going to try to discover today, how do we know whether our faith is actually the faith of Abraham or whether we've got some knockoff faith that we thought was an heirloom, and it's actually not. So the first place we're going to look is, is it in what I have done? Is it in what I have done? Look at verse 1 of chapter 4. Then, what then shall we say was gained by Abraham? Our forefather according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Let's stop there. Believing God was a work that Abraham did. And so Paul goes to Genesis 15, 6, which is an important passage for both the Jew and for, for Christians later on. It's a very important case. Because again, they draw that opposite conclusion. And Paul gives us two fundamental reasons why Abraham's righteousness that was credited to him, that was given to him by God, was made, an account was made for him, why that was not based on works, but instead was based on faith. It's based on two reasons. First, righteousness is a gift. It's a gift. Look at verse four. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, 
but as his due. He's owed something. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. All right, let's stop there. So righteousness has to be a gift. It's a gift of God imputing the righteousness of Christ to us. And it's a gift. It can't be something that we're owed. And there's a very fundamental reason why it cannot be owed to us based on something that we've done. And it is because of the character of God. It is who he is. God is a completely free individual. Now what that means is he's not obligated to anybody. The only thing that really limits God is his character. There are things that God cannot do. He can't lie. Why? Because his character does not allow him to do that. He cannot sin. Why? His character does not allow him to do that. So yes, God is all powerful, but he is limited by his character. So one of the things in God's character is that he's completely free, meaning he cannot be obligated to another being. So you see where this is going? If you work, if you earn something, then God is obligated to pay you a wage. If salvation can be gained by works, then that means I can put God in my debt. And that's not how God works. God is a completely free being. Now, the only way that he obligates himself is by his promises. And there, he's obligating himself by himself, right? So that's his decision to do that. And this is why I think many of us kind of gravitate towards sort of a salvation by works or a hybrid of salvation, faith plus works, because we like the idea of God kind of being contractually obligated to owe me something. We like the idea of having God in our back pocket. And it's, it's not the way it works. In fact, it's a, it's a prideful thing. It's an arrogant thing. And it's another reason why salvation can't come by works is because salvation comes through faith, which is what the humble do, not the arrogant, not the arrogant. So righteousness is a gift. Righteousness is also a mercy. Look at verse six. Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. Paul is actually... Uh, adopting a rabbinical uh, style of argument where if you're making a theological point, typically you would quote two passages. You would quote something from the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, and then you would make a quotation from the Psalms or the prophets called the writings. So he's already made the quotation from the Pentateuch, Genesis 15, 6. Now he's jumping over to the Psalms. This is Psalm 32. And most people think that David wrote this Psalm after his sin with Bathsheba. And David understands something about the way that God works. If God is going to count righteousness based on works, then God's going to take the whole thing into account. He's going to take both the good things I've done and the bad things I've done. He has to. And David looks at his own life, again, the state that he's in at that time, and he, he realizes there's no way I can be counted as righteous based on my works. Why? Well, let's look at just the Ten Commandments. David's writing this psalm, and if we look at his affair with Bathsheba, he has coveted another man's wife, he has slept with that man's wife, and then he has murdered that man to cover up the other two. Any of those three, according to Mosaic law, gets you killed if you do them intentionally. And so David looks at his own life, he's like, I deserve death. According to the law, I deserve death. So why is he saying what he says in verses 7 and 8 here? 
He's throwing himself on God's mercy. That's his only option left. He's saying, God, if I'm going to be righteous, somehow you're going to have to do it. You are going to have to be the one who blesses me and has mercy on me and does not count against me these heinous things that I have done. And it has to be the same for us. If you're going to have a works-based righteousness, you're going to have to put your best day up against your worst day. And I think for most of us, our worst days don't, uh, our worst days will outweigh our best day because it's conditions of the heart. It's things that I've done even when I haven't realized that I've been doing them. I wouldn't take that risk. We've all failed. We've all lied. We've all stolen. We've all cheated. We've all lost our temper. We've all failed to control our tongues or controlled what our eyes have looked at. And that's why being nice or going to church or being a good person doesn't balance the scales. We've talked about this. And this is the argument that I would make here. If Abraham and David understand that salvation cannot be gained by works and they are more righteous than we are, and I think most of us would agree that they are, why would I think that it would work that way for me? If it doesn't work for them, why would it work that way for me? So as we're going through Grandpa Abraham's house, we've looked in one room, we've looked in the works room, and it, 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 our faith isn't found there. Maybe, maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe it's in what my parents did for me. Maybe it's in what my parents did for me. So all of us, for better or for worse, are where we are today in some part because of our parents. Now, on one end of the spectrum, maybe you had great parents, fantastic parents, who loved you, discipled you, shepherded you, encouraged you, gave you every opportunity, even gave you maybe financial help, and you are where you are because of your folks, and you're happily carrying on their legacy. On the other hand, some of you actually bristle at the thought of being where you are because of your parents. You resent your parents. Your parents were terrible. Maybe they were abusive. Maybe they were neglectful. You are where you are despite your parents. Well, guess what? Even in that scenario, you're still responding to the upbringing of your parents. You're just trying to not be like them. Most of us probably land somewhere in the middle. Our parents were probably really good at some things and really bad at some other things. Somewhere in the middle. Maybe they were just average parents. But for those of us who grew up in church, her parents brought us to church, we may begin to think that our salvation, our faith is actually placed in this tradition that we've been brought up in. Maybe some of you were baptized as an infant. Something that you didn't even choose to do. Maybe you didn't choose to come to a Baptist church. Maybe if you had had a choice, you'd have gone to a Presbyterian church or a Methodist church. And so now you're not actually having faith in Christ. You're, you're having faith in something that was done for you. And Paul brings his attention to this in verse 9. This is a fairly long passage. Uh, verse 9 through 12. Is this blessing then, the blessing of mercy, the blessing of, of God's righteousness uh, sort of forgiving us for our sin, is this blessing then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised so that righteousness would be counted to them as well. And to make him the father of the circumcised who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. In case you're wondering, the word circumcision is mentioned 10 times in four verses. It's quite repetitive. Long word. Whew. 
the Jewish person would respond to Paul's assertion that David is forgiven by saying, yeah, David's forgiven. David's failure is not counted against him because he's a part of the covenant people of God, because he's circumcised. And Paul says, okay, fair enough. Well, let's go back to our boy Abraham. Was Genesis 15, 6, it was credited to him as righteousness, was that written before he was circumcised or after? And every good Jew who knew his history would know that Genesis 15, 6 it was credited to him as righteousness, takes place 29 years before Abraham has surgery. And in our day, and and then from then on, Jewish boys are circumcised at eight days. Eight days old, once the Mosaic law comes down. Jesus was circumcised at eight days old. It's not a choice they make. I don't know any eight-day-old that would love to go under that process. I don't know anyone that would want to go under that process. It's not a choice they make. But this Jewish man, this hypothetical Jewish person that Paul's arguing with, is putting his faith in something that was done for him. And if we are not careful, especially those of us who grew up in church, especially grew up in Baptist, maybe you grew up in this church. Maybe you've never, ever worshipped in a church other than this room. We've got to be careful. We've got to examine what is it that we actually believe. There is a real possibility that we put our faith in tradition rather in the cross of Christ. Let me ask this. Do you judge other denominations for not being Baptist or Baptist enough? Do you worry that we're losing our Baptist heritage? There's grounds for that sometimes, but... That could be a concern. That could be that tradition becomes where you put your faith rather than in the cross of Christ. Do you feel like God's angry with you if you miss a Sunday of church? I'm not saying just you can skip church. Please don't hear that. But do you feel like God has some displeasure with you if you, if you miss a Sunday? If you, even if you have a legitimate reason for it and you're like, I'm sick. And you're like, oh, God's probably unhappy with me. Maybe your faith's in tradition. Paul talks about circumcision. For us, baptism can sometimes be that place, right? Paul says in, in, in verse 11 here, he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness. We talk about baptism as a sign, an outward sign of an inward faith. Some of us will look to baptism as the thing that saves us. I was baptized. Well, that's great. But was your faith, is your faith genuinely in Christ? Now, as I've said before, and I, I really hope you don't walk out of here thinking this, tradition is not a bad thing. We've talked about this before. I think tradition is a very good thing. I love tradition. I will fight with you for tradition. Because tradition is the vehicle through which we pass down the faith to the generations over and over and over again. It's a good thing. But traditionalism is not. Being so calcified into a way of doing things and putting our faith there that it's almost this identity crisis if we lose a component of it and not a core value If your faith is in what your parents have done for you, it's not saving faith. It's not saving faith. So we've looked at works that were done by us. We've looked at works maybe that were done by other people, by previous generations. Maybe it's, it's in another place. Maybe it's in being right. Maybe we can put our faith in believing the right things. So look at verse 13. For the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law but through the righteousness of faith. For if it is to the adherents of the law who are to be the heirs, faith is null and the promise is void. 
For the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. That is why it depends on faith, in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherents of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who has the heirloom, who is the father of us all. So Paul dives back into the law here, uh, the Mosaic law, the law that was given on Mount Sinai, the Ten Commandments and all that. And you might be thinking, well, why is he going into this? Abraham lived hundreds of years before the law was given. Well, because the Jewish rabbi would say that Abraham is actually, even before Torah was given, Abraham kept Torah perfectly. He's the, the paragon of keeping Torah. And Paul is saying, no, 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 no. He didn't have the law. The law, it wasn't gained by the law. It's gained through faith. And the Jewish person put a lot of faith, a lot of stock in knowing the law. Now, this is a very specific work, because you might be sitting there and be like, Travis, we just covered works. No, 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 This is a very specific work. This is a work that I'm susceptible to, and this is a work that I think many of you are susceptible to as well, because we have a, a, a church that is uh, affluent. It also has a, a well-educated people, people who enjoy learning theology and doctrine, The Jewish person would say that I am saved because I know what God wants. I even know his name. I know what the law says. I'm a part of the covenant community that got the law. I even sometimes do the law. And so I I know what it says and I can quote it to you. And Paul says, you can't put your faith there because the law, knowing what God's word says, doesn't save you. You know why? because it actually has the opposite effect. It actually increases the severity of our sin. Now, how does that work? Because this is what Paul talks about. He says in verse 15, for the law brings wrath, but where there is no law, there is no transgression. So all transgression is sin, but not all sin is transgression. Well, what do I mean by that? What I mean is there are some people who know what God's will is and know what God wants them to do, and they choose to do other things. That's transgression the law. It's willful disobedience. On the other hand, there are people, there are cultures, there are people who have never heard the name of Yahweh. And they're going on their daily lives and they're sinning just as much as we are. But they don't know what God desires. Jesus actually talks about this himself in Luke 12, 48. He says, those who know and then do otherwise are actually punished more severely than those who don't know and still do otherwise. Even the Mosaic law made distinctions between people who violated Torah intentionally and people who did it by accident. And so Paul's making the same distinction here. If you're putting your eggs in what you know, what you understand, right theology, right doctrine, you got a problem because it's actually making you look worse than better. This is a, not a physical work. This is a cognitive work on our behalf. This is a mental work. This is about knowledge. We think that because we know doctrine, we know the right answers that God will save us. And this is actually another way to make God obligated to us. We make him like a teacher with a test. And if we have the right answers, he's obligated to give me a passing grade and then I get to go to heaven. In fact, some of you, this has been hardwired into the way that you came to know Christ. Somebody at some point asked you, if you were to die tonight, and Jeff pointed this out, why is it we're always dying at night? If you were to die tonight, well, you can die right now, I guess. People die in the daytime. But if you were to die tonight 
And Jesus were to ask you, why should I let you into my heaven? What would you say? And you have been taught that what you're supposed to say is Jesus Christ is my Lord and Savior. Jesus died on the cross for my sins. And then Jesus is like, oh, correct answer. Come on in. Your faith is not actually in Jesus Christ. Your faith is is in your ability to pass a test. Your faith is in your ability to produce a correct answer at the right time. That's test taking. And for my people in here who are not good test takers, you're like sweating. You're like, oh my gosh, I'm nervous. I've got to study, right? Now, don't get me wrong. Knowing right theology, knowing right doctrine is a good thing. It's really important. Really important. I will be the first to tell you this. This is why we're doing the doctrine and dessert uh, studies that you've got in your bulletin there. Why we're looking at points of doctrine. Because you need to know these things. They will help you grow your faith. In fact, this is one of the ways that I grow and mature as a believer. It's one of the ways that I kind of lean towards growing as a believer is, is increasing in knowledge. Paul actually prays for the Colossian church that they would increase in the knowledge and understanding of God. That's Colossians 1. Knowing is a good thing. But at the end of the day, when you lay your head down at night, and when I lay my head down at night, where is my faith? If I were to die tonight... Do I lay my head down and think, it's okay, I've got the right answer? Or do I lay my head down and I think, Lord Jesus, even if I'm wrong, I'm still counting on you. Even if I get the words wrong, even if there's some point of doctrine that I've missed, even if I'm wrong that, again, hypothetically, I don't believe this, what if there is no Trinity? I'm still counting on Jesus Christ. Again, I think there's a Trinity. Don't. I believe in the Trinity. One of the ways that you know whether or not you're trusting in works, or, uh, of this cognitive work, and if you're not, is do you look down on other denominations, other traditions, other faiths, and think, well, thank you, Lord, that I'm not a Methodist. Golly, dodged a bullet there. Thank you, Lord, that I'm not Presbyterian. How could they baptize infants? Goodness. That's what the Pharisee does. In Luke chapter 18, verses 9 to 14, Pharisee, tax collector, they go to pray and he says, Lord, thank you so much for not making me like this tax collector. Lord, thank you so much for not making me like this Muslim or this Hindu. Now, there is gratitude towards being raised in the faith. Yeah, absolutely. Praise God. That's a work. That's one of the ways that he, he sovereignly guides our, our, our salvation. But if it brings us to look down on other people, I, that's a red flag. Being right And having knowledge may inform your faith. It may make it more robust. But if it just leads you to pride, it's it's what 1 Corinthians 8.1 talks about. Knowledge puffs up. Let's not be puffed up people. Your knowledge should lead you to a deeper dependence on Christ. The more you know, the more you should realize, wow, I really need Jesus. It shouldn't be more self-sufficiency. It should always lead you back to the gospel. And if it doesn't, it's not knowledge worth having. So it's not in what we do. It's not what's been done for us. It's not even in what we know. Maybe it's in what I experience. Maybe that's where Abraham put his faith. He had an experience with God. Let's look at verse 17. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope, he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead, since he was about 100 years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. 
Stop right there. Paul's getting really close to landing the plane, uh, but right before he does, he stops to explore one more place. Abraham did not believe God because he looked at his current situation and thought, yeah, this, this looks right. God can probably deliver on these promises. No, everything told Abraham that God's promise of giving him an heir, giving him land, giving him all this stuff was absolutely crazy. Abraham's close to 100 years old. Sarah's never been able to produce children. I, all I have is this like group of nomads that are going with me. I can't possibly take over land. In fact, when Abraham dies, the only piece of property that he owns is the tomb that his wife is buried in. That's it. Empirically, based on evidence, based on what he's looking at, he should not believe God. But Abraham, his sight, his experience, seeing what God has done in other places actually helped inform his faith. Don't get me wrong, experience, sight, surprisingly enough, actually becomes a big part of faith. Let me explain what I mean by that. The Israelites saw God destroy Egypt with the plagues. They saw God destroy the armies of Pharaoh with the, with the Red Sea. They saw the pillar of cloud, the pillar of fire. Psalms tells us to, to taste and see that the Lord is good. Experience him. The disciples saw Jesus crucified. They saw him buried. They saw the empty tomb. Thomas puts his hands in the side. That's an empirical uh, investigation. That's a scientific study. Jesus is alive. And they wrote these things down and they've passed them on to us. Sight, experience. That's a big part of our heritage of faith. Empiricism should inform our faith. But your faith shouldn't work for empiricism. It shouldn't work for your experience. It shouldn't work for what you know. It should be the other way around. Empiricism should support and work for your faith. Because if you're basing what you believe on what you see, when you encounter difficult times, when you encounter hard times, you'll doubt the goodness of God. You'll quit and you'll give up. And when good times roll around, you'll think, oh, God's good. Praise the Lord. That's basically what the health and wealth prosperity gospel is. And that's why it's so dangerous. Because it makes people think who have genuine faith that they can't go through hard times. And you absolutely can. Your faith cannot be circumstantial. It has to be rooted, founded, placed in the cross of Christ. So, can't trust our eyes, not completely. They have an important role to play, but not completely. You can't put your faith just in what you've experienced. You can't put your faith in, in this like camp experience that maybe you had as we look forward to the week of the camp. If your salvation is rooted in, well, there was this one time at camp that I got really excited, and you've had no growth, no change since, your story should be one ongoing, not just a one-time experience. So where do we put it? Well, it's got to be in the cross of Christ. It's got to be in the cross of Christ. So Paul actually tells us in verse 21, he actually explains this heirloom that Abraham is passing down to us. He actually explains what it is. It's like the antique roadshow where they tell about all about the antique and like how it works and you know why this design puts it in this time period or whatever. Anybody watch the antique roadshow still? Right on. Good for you. Yeah. Parents loved it, so I thought other people would do. So Abraham's faith, the faith that is credited to him as righteousness, is actually a two-part faith, okay? And he talks about it in verse 21. We'll start in verse 20 uh, to give it some context. No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, 
fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So it's a two-part faith. The first thing that Abraham believes is that God is able to do the things that he promised. Look again at 21. Fully convinced that God was able. He's fully convinced that God is able. Abraham lived in a time period of polytheism which meant no God was all-powerful. This God was over water. This God was over maybe military victory. This God was over fertility. And so think about all the things that God is promising Abraham. Land, a future, descendants, a son. Those would have been offered by different gods. No one God would offer all those things because no one God had control over them except for Yahweh. Yahweh steps in and says, I can do all those things. You put your faith in me. All eggs, one basket right now. And Abraham considers, again, also looking at the, the inability of his, his own family to produce an heir, and he thinks, you know what? All right, God, I believe you. I trust that you can do these things that you say that you will do. I trust that you'll be able to do those things. Imagine if I said I was going to give you a million dollars. You may have faith that I would be willing to do that. I do not have a million dollars. I am incapable of giving you that money. Now, if somebody wants to give me a million dollars, I'd be happy to take that off your hands. Abraham believed that God could do. The other half of Abraham's faith is that Abraham was, verse 21, fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. He believes that God will do what he said he would do. Abraham lived again in a time period when the gods weren't benevolent and kind. They're capricious, petty, cruel, and kind of big scaredy cats. We're not very far removed from uh, the, the founding of the Greek pantheon. And if you know anything about Greek mythology, man, they're terrible gods. Like it's like every other week that Zeus is turning into an animal and trying to flirt with somebody. It's, it's bad, right? They're petty and cruel. They would be just as likely to promise something and then tr trick you into it, trick you into something else than to actually bless you with something. And so God comes to him and says, no, 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 I'm, I'm benevolent. I will take care of this. I promise you based on myself that I will do these things. And it has to be the same for us. Saving faith has to be just like Abraham's. Will God do what he said he would do? And is God willing to do what he said he'd do? Can he and will he? And this finds its convergence at the cross of Christ. Can God save me through the death, burial, and resurrection of a Jewish peasant who lived 2,000 years ago who claimed to be God? And the answer for your faith has to be yes. That's where faith starts. Is this true? Do I believe that God is capable of forgiving me of my sins by taking into account what somebody did so long ago? Is he able to do that? And honestly, I think that requires way more faith than Abraham had regarding having a son. Because in our empirical scientific age, we dismiss what scripture says, we throw it out and we say, oh, that, I, I, I don't think God can do that. Jesus is an example for us. That's bull. Jesus is more than an example, or he's nothing at all. Is God able to save me through the cross of Christ? Do you believe that? And then we come to the second component. Will he save me? Is he willing to save me? Look at verse 24. Verse 23, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. Paul says this, it will be counted to us who believe in him, who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. It will be counted to us. Do you believe those words? 
Do you trust God to save you? Not hypothetically and not just corporately, but as an individual. Without any obligation on your part, without anything that you've done, do you just trust him? He's going to come through for me. I know that things are difficult right now. I know it seems ridiculous, but God's not going to let me down. The cross of Christ will deliver me. The empty tomb is a guarantee that I will be delivered. And to me, this is the hardest part. Not can he, but will he? Because I think many of us look at the cross as like this jump start to the rest of what we do. It's cross plus works, or it's cross plus tradition, or it's cross plus knowledge, cross plus experience. That's not saving faith. It's either all the work of God through Christ, or it's none of them. You don't get it both ways. You cannot obligate God to you. That's why you have to trust him. And I'm here to tell you, and frankly, I'm here to tell you every Sunday. This is what I want to do every single Sunday is to tell you that it is Jesus Christ and putting our faith that he can do what he's promised and he will do what he has promised. And so for some of you, that starts with salvation for the first time. Boom, you're going to believe. And today's going to be the first time that maybe somebody articulated it in a way that you can understand it. It's like, oh, faith actually makes sense to me now. I get it. And maybe you're like, I want to do that. I, I do believe that God can save me and I believe that he would that he's that gracious, that he's that loving, that he's that kind, despite maybe what I've done, despite the way that all my life maybe I've construed how salvation works, he's still willing. Yes, he is still willing. If you were alive, he is still willing. But it goes beyond that. Abraham's journey really starts in Genesis 12, but Genesis 15 still really early in his, his story. From here, Abraham prays on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah. From here, he has a son, and from here, he goes to sacrifice that son. Abraham's journey of faith started there. So for you, your journey of faith may start with justification by faith. But it goes much beyond that. Your faith, this trust that the cross of Christ is enough, is sufficient. It should plant in your life and germinate into this tree where you depend fully on Christ all the time. So when you go to work, and you're passed over for promotion, or people are cruel to you, you rather than retaliating, you're like, no, I'm going to trust that God's going to watch over my needs. I'm going to trust that Christ has my back. I'm going to worry about the benefit of my coworkers. I'm going to worry about the good things for my clients. I'm going to worry about flourishing in my workplace, because that's what the cross has done for me. In your marriage, do you have enough faith, men, to lay down your life for your wife? to put selfishness aside, to put your needs aside and give 110% to your family because that's what you've been called to do in Ephesians 5. Ladies, wives, do you have faith enough in Christ to encourage and exhort your husband to leadership? Not nag him, not pester him about it, but say, I trust you and I'm willing to follow you. Is that what you have? From unmarried folks in here, do we trust God with patience? Do we trust him in waiting for what he has for us? Do we trust him in purity? Do we trust him? Do we trust him? Are we focused on what we don't have? For all of us, are we more focused on what we don't have than what we do have? Where's our faith? Because I want my faith to be in what God can do and what he said he will do. 
And everything else is secondary, tertiary, doesn't register. Your grandfather, Abraham, has an heirloom for you. And he wants you to take it. This faith that God will do what he said he would do and that he can do what he said he would do. No matter how ridiculous that is, whether it's having a child at 100 years old or that Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection somehow over the centuries has mean, mean something for me today that I am made right with God by the death of someone that I don't really understand. It's not in your works. It's not in what other people have done for you. It's not in right thinking, correct theology. It's certainly not in what you experience. All those things can contribute to understanding, but it's not where it starts. It's not even what completes the work. It is salvation by grace through faith. Let's pray. Gracious God, thank you for Abraham. Father Abraham and his generosity, his courage, Lord God, that you gave him, Lord. He believed you and it was credited to him as righteousness. And those so many years ago that was given to us to look back on and say, that's how it's done. That's what saving faith looks like. So God, I pray that in this place and at this time, those who are wrestling with their salvation, those who are wrestling with whether or not they know you, Lord, I pray that you would speak truth into their life. I pray that they wouldn't um, be confused For those that are saved, I pray that you would confirm and affirm that their faith really is in the cross of Christ and not in anything else. For those that are not, Lord, that are wrestling with it, I pray that pride, shame, confusion would be laid aside, and I pray that they would make a decision for you today. Lord God, we love you. We thank you for the cross. It's in your son's name we pray. Amen. Thank you for taking time to listen to this sermon. Come and join us as we seek to follow Jesus every day. We meet every Sunday at 9.15 a.m. for our small group Bible studies called Connect Groups and 10.45 a.m. for worship. We hope to see you soon at Park City's Baptist Church.